let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue to reflect into the richness of this book, the book of Revelation, a book that has had us constantly going back to the Old Testament huh? to see how Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament, not only in himself, but also in the church, the kingdom of God that he came to establish, something that we will certainly continue to reflect upon this evening. And we will do so by continuing our reflections into chapter 12, right? Because we really didn't get that far last week. I think we spent three days in the first few verses of chapter 12, verses that really had us reflecting into the Blessed Virgin Mary as the woman. Um, and I know Derek, of course, joined me at the end of the week to reflect into the significance of the woman as the church and what that meant for us and how we are called to personalize this truth in our own life. So, what we will do this evening is pick up in chapter 12 with verse 3. But before I do that, I do just want to continue to extend a very warm thank you for all of you tuning in by way of podcasts in the countries of Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Canada, uh, South Africa, India, Turkey, Portugal, France, Spain, Italy, uh, Croatia. I see all of you on the grid, and I really don't want too much time to pass by without thanking you, thanking you from the bottom of my heart that you are joining me to reflect on this great book and the many truths that come to us in the beauty that is the deposit of faith. So with that, if you do have your Bibles out, if you want to turn with me to chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. Again, this is chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. And by way of commentaries too, I know a number of you have asked me questions about the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture I do recommend that. Of course, we are also going through Michael Barber's Coming Soon, and we have touched upon Scott Hahn's Lamb Supper. There are many commentaries out there, and, and any commentary that is going to get you into how Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament, especially in this book, I cannot recommend that commentary enough. Because quite simply, my friends, what you are doing when you are reading sacred scripture with these commentaries is you are getting to know our Lord, are you not? So it's so important to just sink deep into each and every verse that you are reading so as to appreciate not only who the author is, and in this case, of course, John the Evangelist, and who he's writing to, but also to draw out the spiritual sense, to draw out the many lessons that can be learned and that ought to be integrated into everyday life. Okay, chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. Okay, so as Michael Barber <laughs> says, you know, and as many other, other commentaries echo, the great red dragon, of course, here is obviously the devil, right? And once again, it is Isaiah who seems to be in the background here. 
after speaking of a woman in travail in, in chapter 27, as we talked about last week, Isaiah describes the defeat of the wicked in terms of crushing the what? The Leviathan. So like Revelation 12, the Leviathan in Isaiah 27 is described as a dragon. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, that is what you read. And of course, also a serpent. This, by the way, is why when we read of the serpent in Genesis 3, we ought to understand this not only as some kind of cunning snake, but a much larger imposing figure like that of a Leviathan or like that of a dragon. Huh? That being said, although Isaiah does not mention the number of his heads, the Leviathan was commonly known in the Bible and ancient literature as having multiple heads. So certainly this speaks to what is going on here in that verse. In relationship to the discussion on the stars, stars are what? But symbols of angels. The casting of the stars to earth then is a symbol for the what? The fallen angels. The seven diadems indicate that Satan is the chief fallen angel, since diadems were, of course, understood as crowns in antiquity. Indeed, my friends, <laughs> the image of political power is present in the dragon's ten horns, which, of course, is drawn from the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom, and Daniel's great vision we have already talked about in chapter 7. However, the imagery here may even penetrate deeper into the historical events of Christ's birth. What do we mean? Well, if the male child born is Christ and the woman is Mary, the red dragon may represent here Herod. Since Edom actually means red, okay, the red dragon may refer to the fact that Herod was an Edomite. So the dragon, therefore, seeks to destroy the infant child as Herod did, okay? We could properly say, just as the Holy Family fled to Egypt, so the woman also takes flight into the wilderness. We'll read about that here in a bit. Herod's kingship, then, we could say is the antithesis, the very opposite of Christ's. Herod gained his throne through murder. He was not the rightful heir to the throne. What did he establish? An earthly temple. Christ is the rightful heir, okay, as God's true son and as the son of David. His kingdom is not of this world, and his temple is in heaven. So what is going on here? Herod represents everything that must be destroyed when the new creation is ushered in. So very rich imagery there in just those two verses. And not only verses that speak to what is symbolic, but again, something that is probably very historic, historic to the time of Christ. Okay, what about verses 5 to 6? She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled in the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. There's that number again. <laughs> so, as just stated, the woman's flight into the wilderness recalls the escape of the Holy Family, right? The escape of the Holy Family from Herod's murderous attempts to kill the infant Christ. Yet, as every verse does, that is to say, as every verse speaks to so much more than just one thing, it also recalls Israel who fled into the desert to escape Pharaoh, right? In fact, if you were to go to Psalm chapter 74, verses 12 to 14, 
these verses compares the defeat of Pharaoh at the parting of the Red Sea to the defeat of the what? Leviathan. You see the richness of these verses? Now, the two interpretations here are not exclusive of each other, since the events in the life of Jesus are presented as the true fulfillment of the Old Testament accounts. Thus, just as Jesus escaped Herod, Israel escaped Pharaoh. From all of this, we can see how John is interweaving several different themes and ideas, which tells us the spiritual meaning behind historical events. We have to remember something about who John is. This figure, John, gives us the fourth gospel, which is entirely different and unique than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What do I mean? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called the synoptic gospels. They summarize the life of Christ. John's is different because he doesn't get into the sequence of events in Christ's life. He's much more concerned with a theological exploration into the life of Christ, what he came to establish. Not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't concerned with how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. No, Matthew is very concerned about showing how Christ is the fulfillment to the Old Testament because his audience, Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, was steeped in the Old Testament. So he was going to meet them where they were at. But John goes deeper. John goes higher, right? Because John's the eagle. He soars like a theologian. And he strategically crafted every verse, not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't, but he did so in a way to show how Christ was fulfilling so many things at once. And this same figure, John the Evangelist, is the one who pins the book of Revelation. This is why we can spend so much time on a few verses, because from one verse to the next and one chapter to the next, he's developing such a rich theology based, of course, in the book of Revelation upon what he saw. It's to say, where there might have been gaps in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, ultimately, John fills in those gaps. And that is why the four Gospels together are an ordered whole into not only the life of Christ and the events that surrounded him, but also his words and his deeds. So all very important. Okay, how about the flight of the woman into the wilderness? Well, here we are. 1260 days brings us back to the 42 months and the three and a half days symbolism. No doubt the symbolism is meant to describe a time of tribulation. And probably more specifically, the chaos as we've talked about it surrounding the events in the year 70 AD. Indeed, the church fled into the wilderness and found refuge on Pella during the siege of Jerusalem. Mary's flight into Egypt thus symbolizes what but the escape of the early Christians during the year 70 AD. In all of this, we are made to see God's protection of his people. And not only in the year 70 AD, but also how this is an image of how God protects his people and the church from the adversary, from the evil one. Okay, verses 7 to 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, 
He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Ooh, rich verses there, huh? So here we have Michael, the great Saint Michael, the guardian of God's people. It is no surprise then that he appears here to foil the devil's attempt to make war on the woman, the church, and Christ. Certainly the, this passage demonstrates that there is a spiritual battle waging behind the scenes of history, that there is a spiritual battle waging behind each and every moment of our lives. There isn't anything that we do, especially in those all-important decisions that we make, that is without a spiritual battle. Because my dear friends, as St. Ignatius of Loyola would remind us, each and every decision we make is either going to draw us closer to Christ or away from Christ. So we are made to see the importance of the decisions we make and how the next decision is essentially a launching point, a strategic launching point from which we can begin anew. Furthermore, as it relates to these verses, the church fathers interpreted this passage, and I believe this to be very important, in terms of the angelic fall at the dawn of creation. It was St. Irenaeus of Lyon, Bishop of France, you've heard me talk about him before, who explained that the devil fell because he was, why? Envious of man. Indeed, if you were to go to Wisdom chapter 2, verse 24, the book of Wisdom tells us that the devil tempted Adam and Eve out of envy. So it would seem then that the fall had something to do with the devil's disgust for God's love for man. Some of the fathers speculated, therefore, that the devil refused to be a part of God's plan to make men share in the life of grace with the angels. Because of this, he revolted. The fact that Revelation chapter 12 closely associates the birth of Christ and the fall of the angels, I think, is very important. Upon seeing the close link between the angelic fall and the incarnation, the father speculated the angels fell because they rejected the notion of a God-man whom they would have to worship. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 12, verse 10? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God. So once again, Christ's victory is associated with the ushering in of the kingdom, right? Of course, this continues to evoke the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And as we have already talked about, there are close parallels between the dragon and the beasts of Daniel. John sees the accuser thrown out, out of court, if you will, just as Daniel saw the court sitting in judgment of the beast. This is also the only place where the brotherhood of the saints is mentioned. And, and I love this verse for that reason. The saints in heaven refer to the martyrs on earth as their brethren. Brethren. That brotherhood is closely connected here to the establishment of the kingdom. And why? Well, because the restoration of the Davidic kingdom is the fulfillment of God's plan to bring all nations into his covenant family. This family, this kingdom made present on earth is the church, the family of God. And this kingdom is established in the work of Christ through which Satan is defeated. 
And of course, the defeat of Satan occurs on multiple levels. First, we see that Satan is cast down at the beginning of time. And this is evident from the fact that the fall of the angels is presented before Christ's birth in the image of a third of the stars falling from heaven, right? As we have seen, the fathers speak of this primordial angelic fall. Yet, it is primarily through Christ's work on earth that Satan is cast out. John sees here the spiritual war behind Christ's work. Huh? Thus, when Christ speaks of his own death, he says what in John chapter 12, verse 31? Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. It is also noteworthy that in the previous chapter, Revelation 11, the destruction of the temple is spoken of in terms of being what? Cast out. You see, my friends, Christ's victory over Satan and establishment of a new covenant is manifested in the judgment on wicked Jerusalem. It further indicates that the Jewish leaders who preferred the earthly temple to Christ were truly acting in concert with Satan and were thus judged with him. The devil is here called the accuser. We talked about this a great deal a few weeks ago when we broke down the different uh, names of Satan, right? Here, the accuser. This certainly draws on the Old Testament understanding that Satan is a kind of prosecutor or legal adversary in the heavenly courtroom, mindful that Satan is also known as the adversary. So the casting out of Satan then symbolizes what God does with the case against the saints. He throws it out of court. Now there's something else here we ought to consider, and that's the word exorcism. What does the word exorcism mean? Well, it comes from the Greek exorcia, exorcia, which literally translates as to oath out, to oath out. Now, we've already talked about the importance of the number seven, right? The number seven as it relates to covenant making. In the first covenant between Abraham and Abimelech, there was an exchange of seven ewe lambs, and there they swore an oath with one another. And in the Hebrew there, the swearing of an oath also means to seven oneself. So this is why the number seven is seen so often in sacred scripture, because it is tied to covenant making. And so anytime you see the word oath and, and covenant making language, it's going to be very, very important. Now, this whole idea of oathing out then is about what? casting Satan out that we might enter into a new covenant with God, a new relationship with God, becoming a new creation, as it were. Last week with Derek, we were talking a little bit about this, the importance of becoming a new creation in Christ, and how so many ways this really becomes an overarching theme to not only Paul's epistles and his theology, but really the whole New Testament. Because the New Testament is about how God testifies on behalf of himself, of his love for us, and how we are called to be caught up in the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, becoming a new creation. Okay, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay, again, here clearly talking about the martyrs. You know, the saints have conquered through the offering of their own lives. Why? Because they love not their lives unto death. 
They learn to give God life-giving love, my friends, pouring themselves out to God, holding nothing back, and therefore having what? Defeated Satan, who seeks to make them like himself, selfish, proud. In so doing, what have these saints achieved? Well, these saints realize the calling Adam first received, but failed to obey. Whereas Adam failed as a priest king, the saints learned to offer their own priestly sacrifice themselves, obtaining what did Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 say? Obtaining the crown of life. Now let us pause here as Christians and, and as Catholics on the importance of the Mass. Because in the Mass, we are given the grace through the sacrament of the Eucharist to learn what life-giving love is all about. And we do so by offering ourselves up in union with Christ. So, just as the church offers up the body of Christ in the Eucharist, so too do the faithful receive him in holy communion, which not only transforms the church into Christ's mystical body, but also enables her, the church, to be offered as his mystical body. Now, the church, as we will see when we get to Revelation chapters 19 to 22, is Christ's body. <laughs> and as Michael Barber points out, not a headless torso here, right? But his actual bride. Because in the Eucharist, the church enters into intimate communion of one flesh with her bridegroom. Christ pours out his life into the church and through the church, so that just as he once offered himself through his earthly body, so now he offers himself through the church. This is what lies at the heart of the Eucharistic sacrifice. When the church offers herself up in the liturgy, Christ is presenting himself to the Father through the church. And why is this important? Well, because when we receive the Eucharist, we become one with Christ, a profound union with Christ. And let us recall here, if just for a brief time, the importance of John 6, as we should, because of course, he is also the author of the book of Revelation. John 6 is the great bread of life discourse. Now, I'm not going to go through all these verses, but I do want to highlight a few verses to get at the significance and the importance of what Jesus Christ says. If you were to pick up in verse 32, John chapter 6, verse 32, the discourse begins to intensify as our Lord's words begin to intensify about the significance of him being the bread of life. And in his own words, as he speaks to it, my very flesh and blood are the life source. Now, the Jews question this. Are you actually saying, Lord, that your flesh is food indeed and blood drink indeed? That we are to actually eat your flesh and drink your blood? They see this as barbaric imagery. And does Christ pull back and say, no, 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 this is just symbolic? No, he doubles down. And he not only doubles down, but the language begins to change in the Greek because all the way up to verse, I think it's 53, the Greek word for eat is estheo or phago, which is your conventional word for eating. But in verse 54, the Greek changes to trogo which speaks more to the chewing and gnawing of animal stock. John has already established Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
And now Christ is talking about himself as the Lamb of God who is to be eaten. And not only that, not only that, if you continue to read these verses in the Greek, the Greek implies constant consumption. Okay, constant consumption. Now, if you were to argue against that, that, well, no, Jesus is still speaking in the symbolic, if our Lord doubling down was not enough for you, well, get a load of what his disciples did. They left him. It was so radical that the disciples left our Lord. They abandoned our Lord. Now, wait a second. If Jesus was talking about his flesh and blood as purely symbolic, why would they leave? I mean, they saw all of his mighty works. They would have no reason to leave. Sure, okay, it's symbolic. Unless he meant what he said, and he said what he meant, right? Unless when he said, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood drink indeed, he actually intended to mean his flesh is food and his blood is drink. And we are to eat and drink this to have spiritual life. John wants us to see the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith. This is why we see it splashed everywhere throughout the book of Revelation. And I know we've already talked about this and developed it, and we're going to continue to develop further when we get to Revelation 19. But I did want to hit the pause button here so that we might appreciate the significance of this language that we find in this verse, specifically chapter 12, verse 11, huh? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They conquer because they first receive the blood of the Lamb. And they conquer in the word of their testimony because they have been empowered by the very life-giving blood of God, Jesus Christ. And abiding in Christ, they love not their lives, even unto death. Amen to that. Okay, we will stop here and uh, pick up tomorrow in chapter 12, verse 12, and we will do so just continuing to reflect into the many layered text that is the book of Revelation, hopefully enriching our understanding of this book, a book that we are called to spend time with, just to spend time with it. You've heard me talk about how our faith is analogous to any relationship, to any courtship. If you're going to get to know your beloved by spending time with them, how are we going to get to know Christ? Well, in prayer, yes, but also, of course, in the study of sacred scripture, where we just spend time with sacred scripture, invoking the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring to light the many truths regarding sacred scripture. And we do it with commentaries, yes. We do it with commentaries, yes. But as it has been touched upon many times, always invoking the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. With that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this time together and the gift of this great book that you have before us to study. And to study is to get to know you, and to get to know you is to love you more. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.